If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Alexandra Fow, the James and Emily Bowes Odyssey Professor of History at Hendricks College at Conway, Arkansas, to talk about her recent book, Medieval Communities of the Mad, out 2021 with Amsterdam University Press. Hi, Sasha, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jana. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? the same 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 beautiful happy august day um so it's beautiful happy what how did you get interested in insanity oh that's a good question um so um i was really uh interested in medicine and the history of medicine uh i took a great course as an undergraduate on the history of medicine in uh, medieval and early modern Europe uh, with uh, Catherine Park at Wellesley. Uh, and then um, I also did another course on the history of medicine when I was studying abroad at the University of York. Um, and so when I came to do my PhD, I kind of wanted to incorporate that in some way. Um, but when I uh, and, and I was working with um, Michael McDonald, who uh, famously wrote uh, on mental illness in the early modern period. Um, and so uh, when I went to my medieval uh, advisor and said, I'm kind of interested in history of medicine, I kind of want to do like not not history of medicine itself, but kind of broader social and cultural understandings of disease uh she said well you've got the perfect person right here to work with on madness um and so that was sort of my route there i didn't think i wanted to do that but then i kind of found myself going in that direction um and it um it was great uh i i started out um thinking I was going to work on um, the madness of, of the king, Charles VI. Um, and I did some preliminary research for that. Uh, and then uh, Bernard Gounet, this really great French historian, uh, came out with the book on this subject. <laughs> but fortunately, I had found these sources in the meantime, and they're so rich. Um, and the remission letters kind of... Uh, became my like field of of uh 
sort of exploration and and they've been so so fruitful yeah tell me about these remission letters which are the primary source base for the book yeah so what they are um is uh in the 14th century um the king of france realized that uh one way to uh get money from people uh, was to uh, offer them a route to forgiveness. There's some thunder. <laughs> Very nicely timed. Um, forgiveness for having committed a crime. So um, what the way that it, it works is um, you would write a letter to the king. Um, and uh, of course, uh, most of the people who are seeking remission are not people who are writing themselves. Um, so they're working with a royal notary to kind of compose this narrative. Um, and so there's some really formulaic language at the beginning all about the king. And there's some really formulaic language at the end where he actually does the kind of speech act of granting pardon. But then in the middle, they tell these stories about what happened um, that caused them to commit this crime that therefore they need to be pardoned for. Um, and uh, they're really amazing sources. Um, some of them are are your kind of typical, um, we got into a fight in the tavern because he said something about my mom. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, there was a bread knife on the table and, you know, one thing led to another. Um, and those kind of get kind of formulaic over time, right? The, there's kind of a <laughs> unclear storyline that everyone knows um, that is your tavern brawl story. Or he, you know, he wouldn't pay his part of the bill and right, and then we got into it. Um, but then a really small percentage of these letters are for people who were identified in the letter as mad, either throughout their lives or recently, or even in some cases, just at the moment when they committed the crime. And so I went through these um, microfilm at the time. Now they're available digitized and it's beautiful, but at the time it was microfilm from the 1940s awesome. and uh, I just read all of these looking for these key words that would let me identify ones that were about people who were mad. And there's so much there's so much to unpack here because there's this mitigated language, right? You're hearing from you're hearing from people but through notaries. So you've got to tell, you get this original story, but it's got to be told in a way that's going to be beneficial, yeah? Exactly. Yes. And, uh, you know, you, you, have, you have the people who are bringing the story, who in some cases are the person who committed the crime, um, but in a lot of cases that person is out of the picture uh, not only in cases of madness, um, because often they would be imprisoned um, or in exile um, and unable to come themselves. So it's often family members who are bringing the story. So now you're already at one remove, right? So you're you're you've got 
the the person who did the thing, and then you've got the family members of the person who did the thing. Um, and it's important to remember that at the end of the whole process of getting remission, um, it's not over when the king puts his seal on it. When the king puts his seal on it, then you have to take that back with you to your home um, where the crime was committed. And it has to be read out loud in public, which is also really interesting because it's part of this kind of storytelling of, you know, making sure everyone gets this narrative. Um, and so it has to be read aloud. And the adverse party, so whoever you harmed, is also present. And they can raise an objection to the content in the letter um, and they can get it annulled. And we actually have evidence of that having happened because sometimes people come back again. Um, of course, it's an expensive process. So coming back again is then again another expensive process. And they, but we have evidence of people coming back and saying, okay, the adverse party said you didn't mention this part. Um, so we need you to add this part of the story. Um, and so, uh, so, so it's actually like, it has to be a story that is acceptable to the other party as well. Um, but then of course, as you said, there's also these royal notaries who are literate, um, and Latinate, right. Um, although they're writing in French, which is also interesting. Um, and so they're also bringing some knowledge of, of, the legal system they're usually uh licensed in in law um and so they know what the legal system looks like although these exist kind of outside it so it doesn't have to be right you don't have to be innocent um although people often characterize themselves as uh, you know not necessarily innocent of this crime but you know uh, there were mitigating cir circumstances that meant that this happened um and so yeah so there there are these really interesting constructed courses uh, 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 constructed sources that involve this whole process of many people having a kind of say in how they're written so then you've got to have a story that everyone agrees on where nobody looks too bad, right? And it's got to fit legal definitions that are going to make sense. But then it's also got to, you have to have some excuse for this or some reason to get a pardon. Yes and no. <laughs> um, so uh, you often want to have some reason to get a pardon, but you didn't necessarily have to. And that's one of the interesting things. This is the king demonstrating his grace and mercy that makes him like God in his own realm. So like with sins and confession, you don't necessarily need to not have been that guilty you can be as guilty you know as you are uh, as long as you are uh demonstrating contrition now does that make sense yeah that absolutely makes sense and then is to i mean then you know so the appropriate nature of like the, the appropriate 
uniqueness of the dispensation is up to the king. But if there's this back and forth, then there's a community as well. And what I'm, and what I'm really trying to get at is just how, who, how many parties are involved in defining things like guilt, innocence, and madness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's called medieval communities. <laughs> yes. Because it's so many different communities who are involved in this process. Um, and that's one of the things I find so interesting about madness in this period. So we're in the 14th and 15th centuries. And there's no one sort of discourse that has ownership over identifying, understanding, and making sense of madness. So unlike in later periods where we might say that um, you know, medicine has a kind of monopoly over how we think about madness, um, or even to some degree, um, and I'm I I don't work on this period, so I may be pushing it here, but in, in a little bit earlier, you might see religion having a little more say. Um, in this period, there isn't uh, any kind of one place where madness is understood and defined. Uh, and so it is actually on the level of the community. Um, there is kind of a sense that uh, that everyone in the community is able to identify it, um, behavior that indicates madness, um, and particularly in these letters. So they're starting to be in this period in the 15th century, there's starting to be some desire to categorize better, right? Um, and so uh, you see uh, theologians like Jean Gerson, who are really interested in being able to identify whether someone is divinely inspired, demonically inspired, or physiologically mentally ill. But for the people who are concerned with these letters, those distinctions don't matter. And so they'll use some language like uh, calm demoniacal, as if demonically possessed to describe behaviors. And for them, it doesn't really matter what the ultimate source is, right? It might matter, for example, if you were going to a saint's shrine. It might help to be able to identify where is this coming from. But for these people, that kind of careful delineation of cause isn't as important. And so they just use all these different languages. Um, they use the language of medicine. Um, you know, they talk about people being melancholic. Um, they talk about people being frenzied or manic. Um, they also use some religious language. Um, they use some legal language because there's also in French legal words that are distinct from the words that you might use in uh, in medicine to describe these states. Does that tell us that the average person is, uh, you know, who's coming forward is much more savvy than uh, <laughs> we might give them credit for being? Yeah, I can't decide if that's coming from the people or from the notaries, right? 
that's one of those places where I wish we had <laughs> some some level beyond the the final draft <laughs> where we could know. Um, my instinct is that it's mostly the notaries who are playing with this language, but that the people to whom they're suggesting the language have some sense of what that language invokes or ideas that are filtered through you know that like then put in palatable language i mean and, and dealing like this is the kind of thing that makes being an historian so, like delightful but frustrating right uh and just a generation or two ago, historians were like, well, it's in print. This is what happened. This is what it means. And we don't do that really so much anymore, do we? No, no, not at all. Now we have to really think about where do these sources come from? Who, who said it? Why? Why did they say it this way? Yeah. How is that? And, you know, and what am I bringing to it? You know, and you're saying like, there's medical language and legal language and religious language. Does maybe these distinctions don't exist for them? We have to consider this. I think they, you know, what's, this is the thing we have to think about. Another really interesting point, just from this kind of the number of voices, is I think moderns, perhaps me, but I think modern people tend to think of madness as being isolated, right? Like, I mean, and we take we take our crazy people. There are air quotes here, folks, and lock them away. But what degree is this the case here? Yeah, not at all. Um, so one of the things that uh, is really interesting about this period, again, right, is that um, madness, uh, people who were identified as mad were expected to be cared for by their family members. Now, obviously, that can't always happen, um, but even in those cases, it seems to be a communal expectation, right? So if the family can't handle it, then it's the responsibility of the community. Um, and there, the hospitals in this period, actually many of them explicitly refused to accept people who were mad. Um, now, in this period, we're starting to get the foundation of hospitals specifically for the mad in Spain and uh, will get Bedlam in England, um, which begins to specialize. Um, but in France, that's not the case. Um, and so it is very much an expectation that your family will take care of you. Now, what that looks like isn't necessarily always really great. <laughs> Right. And that was actually one of the things that I struggled with um, when I, I I first did this this work uh, as part of my dissertation research. Um, and then the book kind of is many years later <laughs> coming back to that material and, and really thinking more with it. Um, and one of the things that I think I didn't manage to talk about successfully in the dissertation version was that these, I, I think I, I kind of imagined the communal, communal response as a positive thing. Um, and one of the things that, that was most important about the revision, about the process of coming back to the material was seeing the, the fissures of that communal response. Um, so uh, I, I, 
actually used uh, Marina Warner's work on fairy tales to think about this idea that, um, you know, that happily ever after story um, that, you know, that fairy tales often end with um, a wedding and a happily ever after um, that actually belies all of the material in the fairy tale up to that point that talks about the problems with marriage. And I think that's true in these remission letters as well. So although they suggest at the end that the community is going to be reformed and uh, we're all going to you know, uh, you know, support this person and we're all going to come together, um, but the story that they tell up to that point shows us that that's actually really challenging and it doesn't always work that way. Um, and it's not a happy community. It's it's a community that is it sort of struggling to to handle these things well. But at some of the ways that uh, that they handled it um, was through um, chaining people up to prevent them from harming themselves or others, um, or you know, confining them in a space. Um, it was not a totally isolated space away from the community. And so, and there was also an expectation that uh, madness could be cyclical. So you could have periods when you needed to be constrained and then periods when you were perfectly fine and able to return to your everyday life. Um, and so that is also really interesting, right? There's not this sense that we put you in an institution away from everyone else, and then we forget about you. So even if we are thinking about people who are constrained, um, they're constrained for a period of time, and then they're allowed to return to their normal activities, and then potentially they have to be constrained again. So it is this kind of constant surveillance to try to know if people are okay or not mm -hmm. or not and then that's is the community okay as well right okay so uh the book is structured around like the communities the ways um madness is understood in communication with various contexts um so in chapter one talks about the legal context that notaries are using how is madness how do they understand madness to be what is, it's not a sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so uh, legal understandings of madness are actually really interesting. I think there's a, um, there's a kind of common misconception that the insanity defense is a relatively new idea, <laughs> um, but it's actually not at all. Uh, the insanity defense existed in Roman law. Um, so, uh, you know, and and medieval law looked back to Roman law as their sort of source for understanding how things ought to work. Um, and so, so yeah, this idea that you couldn't be held responsible for your actions if you were mad um, is very much present. Um, and then there's also uh, another place where uh, madness shows up, which is uh, in terms of guardianship. 
Um, so this idea that uh, you can't be held responsible for your actions in a criminal sense, but you also can't be held responsible for your actions in a civil sense, right? So you can't enter contracts because there's a concern that you don't, you won't be able to understand what those contracts entail. And so someone else needs to be able to step in and do that for you. So you're just, you're without reason is, is the deal here. And you're, you're not a, this, it feels like there's something kind of infantilizing, or I guess that's the point, right? You're in care. No, you're not, you're not responsible for your sins, nor anything else. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, this is one of the places where, uh, people had to be cautious, um, this is another reason why I think we don't see a ton of people claiming madness as the cause for why they committed whatever crime they committed, because there are repercussions to making that claim. Yeah, yeah, that's not a great position to be in either, that you then can't be responsible. You can't live on your own or you have to, you know, you're your children might be in charge of being bent or something. Right. And then chapter two talks about the way families manage this. And um, and one of the things that this section tells us um, is a lot of what are believed to be the causes of madness, like how one becomes mad. So what stood out to you here? Yeah. Um, so, so there are lots of things in terms of, of causes of madness, right? And some of them are, are really kind of physiological. So uh, getting a bump on the head um, kind of thing could cause madness. Um, but some of them are really more what we would think of as psychological. So kind of extreme emotions could cause madness or be a sign of madness, right? And so that's where we kind of get into these tricky, like, is it chicken or egg, right? Which which one was it that the emotion caused you to be mad or was it that the uh, emotion came from your already existing madness? Um, but yeah, I mean, this is where uh, I think um, we really get into the stories, which are my favorite part of this whole uh thing right so so people um there's a story um about a woman who um doesn't want to move but her husband uh has decided that they're going to move um and so she's getting so worked up about the fact that he is forcing her to leave her home um, and so these kind of emotions are kind of overcoming her uh, to the point that, you know, she's she's angrily, you know, going around and, and trying to mess with the people who are packing up her house. Um, and she grabs an onion and a knife and she's going to eat the onion. And then her husband comes over and is remonstrating with her. And so she takes that knife that she's taken for the onion. And she she is out of her mind with this grief that she's being forced to move and, and this, you know, this anger. And she stabs her husband. 
that kills him. And and that idea that that these kinds of emotional states could kind of explode into a moment of of grief and anger um and uh and that that could trigger and and for her it really does seem to be presented as just a moment of madness right um where she has now recovered um whereas others the the emotions seem to uh, last much longer, right, and and create a, a much deeper and more um, more kind of continuous uh, episode of madness. This feels like a really good place on um, these stories to also see just kind of the ongoing stresses of life. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there are. Um, well, there are lots of stories, um, but uh, there are there are two that I think uh, I find really interesting for for precisely that. Um, one story is about Queen um, Kushat, who um, is um, he he and his family has to leave their home because of the plague, which is also an interesting right the the pestilence kind of moves through these remission letters right there it's very seldom a focus but it kind of there in the background right because we're in the 14th and 15th centuries and this is just kind of a constant of life now um so the pestilence comes to their village and they have to move um so he picks up his wife and children and he moves them to a nearby town um but it's some distance from their village um, and they're fine for a period of time. Um, and then they start running out of food. Uh, and they've got food back in their home village, but they don't have any where they are. And he's afraid to go back to the home village because of the pestilence. And his wife is sick. Now, she's not sick with the pestilence. <laughs> she has a different sickness. And he's very clear about that. Um, but uh, she's sick. Uh, and so he's worried that he can't care for her and their children. Um, and there's it's this real stress about about him as provider. Right. Um, and so he goes out into the community uh, to try to get access to food and try to get somebody to give him food. And this is also one of those interesting places where we can see how communities can be not good. Right. Because he's removed from his usual community. He's left his place where he probably has a lot more ties and come to some place where he doesn't have as many and no one will help. So he goes around looking for food. No one will help him out. Um, and so then he goes uh, and he thinks about committing suicide because he's so upset about the fact that he can't help his wife and children and there's no food um, and he can't do anything. So he goes and he thinks about throwing himself into uh, a body of water nearby. And that's when the community does intervene because a woman comes by and asks him if he's okay. Uh, and he panics and runs away from her. And then he goes and kills his wife. But then he comes out and tells everybody, I've just killed my wife. And he's horrified that he's done it. And he, no one will do anything about it. No one will, will turn him in to the 
local justice system. And then he goes and turns himself in. And then his family comes and gets him a letter of remission so that he can come back and take care of his children. But no one is doing anything about this man's deep and horrifying grief and guilt and, and feelings of, of, of horror, right? I mean, it's, it's such a terrible story. That was actually the first time I cried in the archives, <laughs> read his story. Yeah, I can see that. It is. It's so sad. And thanks, community, for noticing, like, way too late. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and also the family who now steps in to pay for this very expensive remission process long after the money would have been helpful. Yeah. And one assumes after the plague is gone, after the stressors have been removed. Like, right. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's, there's something there about family dynamics. And, um, absolutely. And the expectations, right, of, of behavior, of uh, the expectations of what men ought to do and ought to be responsible for. Um, and I see that also with women. So, um, and with women, it's, it's usually around, uh, uh, around, uh, children. Um, so, uh, there's a story about Jehanet Voidier, uh, who, um, is pregnant. Um, and she's terrified that they don't have enough money again, right. To support another child. Uh, even though her husband keeps telling her that they're fine. Um, so, you know, they have several children um, and they're, she's about to have another child, but she is convinced that they can't support another child. And she starts telling her other children that she's a terrible mother um, and her husband and her brother and her father keep trying to intervene and tell her that everything is fine, that she's okay, but she won't listen to them. And so then when she has the baby, uh, she loses her milk. So they have to give the baby to a wet nurse, um, but the baby's pretty sickly. Um, and the wet nurse brings the baby back uh, and she claims that she's gonna take the baby uh, on a pilgrimage to a shrine nearby um, to pray for it to get better. Um, and she goes to pick up one of her sisters to go with her. Um, and while she's waiting for her sister to turn up, she drops the baby into a well. But then she insists that she didn't. And she tries to help get the baby out of the well and and all of these things. Um, and so, yeah, it's again this kind of narrative about failures about perceived failures even in cases where there aren't actual failures um but of course in some ways she has failed because she lost her milk um so so that's one of those interesting things where um the the letter itself may be pushing it back to see earlier moments when she exhibited this kind of uh depressed behavior before the moment when the the actual crime was committed 
Yeah, so many expectations. And so not meeting adequate expectations is so destructive, which resonates. Um, You know, when I was reading some of this, it made me think of really uh, early Grimm's fairy tales. Like, so many folk tales are about dead children and broken families. And yeah, so possibly not so fictional, those tales. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, and then in chapter three, you talk about the way these remission letters were intended to reintegrate as well or allow, right? So there's this reintegration of the person into the community. How does this work? Yeah. Um, So one of the things that remission letters in general do this, right? So so very often um, somebody who's committed a crime uh, goes into voluntary exile and the remission letter is their way to come home, right? And they talk about that, you know, that they're, they, they can't, they don't dare to come home without this letter of remission or they're in prison and they can't be released without this letter. Um, and so the language that, that formulaic language I was talking about, right, at the end of the letter actually does this speech act where the king pardons the person and restores them to their good reputation in the community and imposes perpetual silence on this matter on the procurer right so it's it's in the legal in a legal sense right because obviously you can't impose perpetual silence on the entire community, right? And and obviously everyone knows this happened. And even if they didn't know before, they do now because they just heard the story. But it creates this space within which, at least in a legal sense, but also it suggests in a communal sense, you can come back to being the person you were before before any of this happened. Um, and so in with a, with a sane criminal, um, obviously this works a little bit differently, right? So you come back to your good reputation, uh, at least in a legal sense, no one is allowed to talk about this anymore. Um, and preferably in a social sense, right? No one will throw it up to you all the time that this happened. Um, but you can come back to being who you were before all of this happened. With mad criminals, and this is where I think it's so interesting, right? They're still using that language as if that can happen. And I think, you know, Guin Kluchat is is my great example of, right? They're assuming that he can just come back and take care of his children and everything will be fine as if he didn't go into this murderous rage and kill his own wife and then feel horrible about it right like they're they're assuming that that he can do that um and and that's sort of present in a lot of these letters in some cases there's also and this is where 
we kind of get into some really interesting differences between the letter narratives. In some cases, there is written into that end coda um, in within the formulaic language. So when you think you can relax and stop reading because you think it's just going to be the same thing it always is, sometimes they'll write into that, oh, also, uh, this person should be kept chained. Um, or this person should be uh, guarded by their family to ensure that they don't harm anyone else in future. Um, so sometimes that shows up, but almost very rarely, right? So so this is not, it's not a, a common thing in every letter for somebody who claims madness as a cause for having committed the crime. So yeah, there is this kind of sense that this person can come back to the community and can be a productive member of that community again. That is, and that's a head scratcher, right? That really is. But I guess there's also probably not many other, what are your other options? They're in prison, they're in exile, these don't work, no? Yeah. Reintegration to the community, then that, I mean, that's in itself pretty cool idea or an interesting thing that that's reintegration of the community is the ideal. Yeah, it is the ideal. And I think that was, uh, as I said, right, that was my kind of, oh, this is ideal, right? This is so great. Um, and and I kind of ignored the fact that they were integrated into the community up to that point. And that's part of why the horrible thing happened. Yeah. I mean, and one assumes without pestilence, or without the extra child, maybe it'll be okay. But yeah, that's that is. Hmm. Yeah, what a um, what a pleasant topic. I know it is. <laughs> it is one of those things that uh, you know you you think to yourself, oh right, I decided that this was a great thing to focus my career on. <laughs> I'm spend the rest of my life reading these things. So, my husband likes to say that uh, if if they show up in in my research, nothing good has happened to them. Well, I mean, exactly. But that's kind of what we built this whole archival turn on, right? We. It's like we're going to talk about what's normal by looking at all of the times it goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talk about marriage by looking in divorce cases. Of course. Exactly. Um, right? Yeah, that's really true. If you're seeing them, the, the worst has happened. Right. So um, I have taken up a whole bunch of your time already. Thank you so much for meeting with me. Uh, you start tomorrow. You're back to your your teaching gig. I am. I I have had I have had a sabbatical semester, which was joyous and wonderful. And I started working in the new archive, although still terrible things are happening to people. That's why. Tell me about this new archive. What are you doing? So I discovered uh, the uh, legal archives in Dijon. Uh, so it's the regional archives of the Côte d'Or, and they are so rich too. Um, but it's exciting because it's witness testimony, which I don't normally get. Um, and so I'm so used to having a set story, right? The remission letters, they're, they're so nicely like bookended, right? It's, it's, a, it's a story 
I can read the story. Yeah, it's only coming from one perspective, but I've got it. Um, and and so now I'm having to deal with, oh, these witnesses don't agree with each other. What actually happened? I have no idea. Yeah, that's really fun. <laughs> Who are you? Are they lying? Do they just not know? Are they just so good at telling this story? I have no idea. It's very cool. Wonderful. I also hear really good things about Dijon as a place to work. It is amazing. It is probably the most beautiful archive, the the regional archive of the Côte d'Or that I've ever been in. Delightful. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, you know, when this this next work comes to fruition, we'll have another chat, shall we? That would be wonderful. (laughs) All right. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.